You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 16. Today we're asking the question, what can we learn from the Brady Report? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? Dave, the question we've got today is what can we learn from the Brady Report? And since not all of our listeners are in Australia and many of our listeners are not in Queensland, I guess we need to start by explaining what the Brady Report is, how it's attracted so much attention and why we think it's worth talking about. So David, maybe it's your turn this time to give a bit of background and why, why was this report commissioned? Yeah, quick shout out to uh, Mark and Josh, friends of the show and, and the university who suggested that, uh, at least they suggested this topic because they thought they'd be interested in um, in our views. So the mining industry in Queensland has had a, I suppose what could be described as a run of fatalities in the last 12 to 18 months, I think a total of eight or maybe nine fatalities. And so in June or July 2019, as a result of five fatalities in the previous financial year, the Queensland Minister for Mines commissioned a review into mining fatalities. And the scope of that review was to analyze essentially 47 fatalities that had occurred in the last 20 years in the Queensland mining and quarrying industry, and to come up with uh, forward-looking industry recommendations and report those back to to Parliament and to the Minister. So so this was to be a a health and safety review tabled in, in Queensland Parliament. So the final report, Drew, is 321 pages. Um, it was done by uh, Dr. Brady. Dr. Brady's a forensic structural engineer. I can only assume that this was one through through Queensland government tenders for, for the work, and, and he went off and, and performed this review. So, Drew, we both have had a read of the review. Do you want to add anything to the background of the report before we get stuck in? So I guess I should quickly mention that we always make a point of saying who writes the research and try to give you some sort of background. And the reason we do that isn't to try to make some sort of claim to authority or to poison the well. Good research is good research, no matter who does it. Bad research is bad research, no matter who does it. But we think it's worth knowing as an early check on a paper who wrote it, because it tells you how to interpret between the gaps, um, how much you trust that they're representing the current state of knowledge adequately, Uh, It gives you an indication of what sort of assumptions and worldview they're bringing to the work. And it's really important for something like this report, which is really a form of qualitative analysis, that you really need to trust processing that's not statistical and can be checked. It's analysis that goes on in people's minds and behind closed doors. And so where they come from is important. And so, yeah, David, as you pointed out, the author of this report's a forensic structural engineer, so their specialty is in looking at the physical causes of construction defects or accidents or things that otherwise make it to court. They don't have a big background in safety, and I think that's something that is going to colour a lot of the things that we look at through the rest of this work. Yeah, Drew, and we'll just try to lay out what, what the report's found and, and, and our views on it in a way that's as, as neutral as we can be, but I... I may have to hold my tongue a few times during this this podcast because I'm not sure how well this report takes us forward. But the process that was followed, though, so the author was given the the copies of the 47 regulator reports into the fatal incident. So these are very detailed reports that are prepared by the regulatory investigator following the the fatal accidents. And so, first of all, the author assumes that these reports accurately reflect the causes and the circumstances of the incidents. So there's, of course, no, no, no checking done on, on the accuracy or, or the content of those reports. In addition, the, the mining regulator in Queensland collects a whole raft of industry information through monthly reports from, from all of the mine operators. So they had something like 40,000 additional incident reports into high potentials and serious accidents and lost time injuries and a range of other things. And 
you know, these a number of these uh, types of incident classifications were then normalized against the hours worked. And in that 20 years, there've been something like 1.6 billion hours uh, worked in the mining industry in Queensland. So, you know, there's there's hundred, there's literally hundreds of pages of graphs of incident data and hours worked data and and trying to make sense of of all of these numbers. But Drew, you've um you've done a lot of work in the in the accident reporting space and how how would you you feel about that as a process picking up 47 accident reports and then trying to use that to make uh make sense of what an industry should do moving forward well i i guess i'm speaking here to those of our listeners who are interested in doing research themselves it's always really tempting to start off as a safety researcher saying i'm going to take accidents that have already happened and I'm going to study them to find patterns. And from those patterns, I'll build my own new theory of what causes accidents. And this general process we call revisionist analysis. Uh, the term revisionist comes from history. And as you might imagine, this is something that people who study history have to do a lot. If you're studying ancient Rome, you're not going to be able to collect original data. The data has been collected to death. All you can do is pick up all of the stuff that people have previously analysed and put your own spin on it, try to create something new out of what other people have intensively studied. And there have been some great examples in safety of where people have done this really successfully. So a few examples we can call out. Uh, Diane Vaughan with her mammoth ethnography about the Challenger launch decision. And what made that one special was she collected a lot of new information and new data that wasn't considered by the original investigation. Another favourite of mine is Snook's book, Drift Into Failure, um, which is, uh, sorry, Snook's theory of Drift Into Failure, which comes out of reinterpretation uh, of the Blackhawk shootdown events. Um, even things like the Hillsborough Independent Panel that looked at the stadium disaster um, and that one, again, they had the power to uncover new information and disclose new things that hadn't been revealed in the previous reports. So those are all sort of good examples of where people have taken past accident data that's already been analysed and created brand new theory out of it. And I think, Drew, there's, um, and then there's popular examples of authors. I think um, Professor Hopkins will be one of those that tends to replay information from accident reports in a way that just presents a whole lot of counterfactuals about uh, what the the new author proposes could have prevented the the incident on the way through. And I think this report is is a little bit more like one of those reinterpretations of the incident investigations where it doesn't uncover anything new or it doesn't overlay any any new theory or, or ideas over the the content in the accident reports. It just themes the, the the original report information and tries to kind of say this is these are the things that are happening more than once in this data set. So the report actually has in its reference list quite a number of books by Hopkins. Uh, so I'm going to take a stab and guess that Dr. Brady is a fan of Hopkins' style of doing this sort of work. Um, and the limitation is that you've only got in front of you stuff that has already been collected using the biases and mindset of the regulator and already classified according to the models that are in the minds of the investigators. Um, and so the risk is that you think you're making new and interesting findings, but all you're doing is reconstructing the models and the biases that the investigators used. You, you find that if you collect 10 reports by people who use ICAM and look for what's similar about them, what's similar about them is ICAM. <laughs> You haven't discovered something uh, new about the accidents, just about the investigators. Yeah, and separate to the mining industry, Drew, I was involved with the um, International Oil and Gas uh, Producers Association a number of times, and they had a particular classification system of reporting the, the causes of major incidents and then would be able to come back every year and say that 27% of incidents were the result of a lack of supervision and 35% was the result of lack of following procedures and 22% were, were human error. And it was because all of the reports had to classify their findings into that classification system. So it, it was kind of like what you look for is what you find. The stuff that goes in comes back out looking exactly the same. So, so my personal test that gives you some indication of how much this is what's happening 
is to look at what recommendations the report makes about better future investigations. A report that comes back and is very critical of previous investigations and says people need to investigate substantially differently is a good sign that the revision is in fact looking at something new. Whereas a report that simply uncritically examines the previous investigations isn't going to say that those investigations did anything wrong. And I, I think this is a preview of things to come, but the Brady report takes the investigations mainly at face value. Um, and as a result, its only recommendation for investigators is when you're investigating an accident, don't focus on a single cause, which is not actually a particular problem with the investigations that it summarizes anyway. So it's, it's not like a telling or scathing analysis of the regulator and the way the regulator has previously been treating accidents. Yeah. So, so Drew, the format that we'll take, let's get started. We'll, we'll talk about those recommendations because I think all of our listeners who, who, who have and haven't read the report are going to be interested in what these recommendations say for this industry moving forward and, and what we think of those. So we'll talk about each of the recommendations. There's about 12 of them and we've, we've grouped them up into, um, into chunks that are, are, are sort of worth talking about. And then we'll just make some general comments and provide some practical takeaways. So recommendation one said that the industry should recognize that it has a fatality cycle. Tell us about what this might mean. Recommendation one, the first recommendation that's put on the table as a result of these 47 fatalities is that the industry needs to understand its fatality cycle. Okay, so the first thing that we need to know about fatality cycles is that they're not a thing. The, the idea, um, it, it's something that I am familiar with. It comes from a paper by uh, Malcolm Jones. Jones actually published several papers. So if you're looking for it, you'll find it stored under different dates. The original one was in either 2002 or 2003 in the Journal of System Safety. Um, that's not a peer-reviewed journal, and you'll be struggling to get hold of a copy of it because you need to be a member of a particular society. It's basically the mag- equivalent of a a professional society magazine. And he published this idea that industries have almost like a grief cycle where you have an accident and then you go through various stages. You start off denying and blaming and then you recriminate and then you start to put a spotlight on safety and then you work really hard at safety, you get success and then you get complacent and you start to accept things going wrong and then you have another accident. There's zero research that goes into these stages or that this is a thing. It's really just an informal observation that someone made. So talking about the fatality cycle is basically a pseudoscientific way of saying, don't be complacent if you have a year when you don't have many accidents. I think from um, for those disaster cast listeners, I think you talk a bit about accident cycles and, and statistical significance in fatal accidents. I think you did an episode on Metro North Railroad early on in disaster cars, which might be worth people who want to go into the back catalogue there and dig it out. There's a lot of discussion about what you can read into changing accident rates year in, year out um, in a particular industry or a particular particular type of operation. Yeah, I don't know if we've been doing the podcast long enough now to know if we've got regular listeners, but regular listeners will know that mathematical illiteracy is something that drives me absolutely crazy. And if you just think just how many people think that they've got a system for the stock market, because they've taken a look at a commodity price graph and said, hey, it looks like commodity prices go in cycles. So all I need to do is buy when it's low and sell when it's high, and that's guaranteed to work. And they very quickly find out that a graph that looks vaguely like there's a cycle doesn't at all mean that there's actually a cycle going on there. Statistically, the question is, can you fit a sinusoid to this data better than just assuming that the data is random? And the answer is, no, you can't. Random data does look vaguely cyclic. It doesn't mean there's a cycle. And I think even if that was the case, I mean, if the advice is only to know when to jump on and jump off that cycle, then you've really got to back yourself that you're going to know when to when to do that and how to go about actually breaking yourself out of that cycle. So it's a largely unhelpful recommendation in the term that, of the way it's framed. But so there's probably two things maybe at play here, Drew. Um, one is that there, I mean, maybe if I ask you the question. So one is that it's just absolutely random. Or two is there's some other cyclical force, not complacency at play, which might go to commodity price or capital investment cycle in, in projects or a whole range of, of things that could play into some sort of cycle that contributes to work and risk in the industry, or it's just random random variation in, in the number of incidents. Uh, look, the honest answer is I haven't done the statistical analysis. 
takes a fair bit of work to try to work out. Uh, you need to test various distributions and various models against the data to see which one is the best fit. But I think the important point here is that the report contains like a couple of hundred pages of graphs and nowhere is there any sort of test to see what model best fits the graph. And I think if someone hasn't done their homework, it's not up to us to do their homework for them. Um, there's no particular reason to believe that there's a cycle. Okay, so so recommendation number one, um, the industry should recognise that it has a fatality cycle and that it becomes complacent and, and we'd call kind of like BS on that in a sense that it probably doesn't even have a cycle and even if it does, it's not a really helpful recommendation because what do you do? You know, when do you jump on and when do you jump off and, and, and there's nothing really actionable in there. So recommendation sort of two, three and four, um, they sort of started, recommendation started with saying that the industry should understand that the nature of these fatal incidents were not extraordinary. They were sort of normal people perform, as Sydney Decker would say, normal people performing normal work in the same way that they kind of do it every day. And then one day it goes, you know, horribly wrong. And so there's a whole raft of recommendations, two, three, and four, that talk about things that are quite, quite tactical and transactional in relation to safety. So do you want to, do you want to overview these for us, Drew? So I guess the first thing to say there is that this is at least a better finding than trying to say that there is some magical cause. You're at least recognising that these accidents are banal and that, you know, the factors that are present in accidents and incidents are just the same factors that are there in normal work may not be groundbreaking, but there's plenty of people who aren't capable of recognising and seeing that. So maybe it is worth just, it is worth saying that in a report is you don't look for magical solutions. Don't look for this one thing that you can fix. And so they call out, um, I suppose those four recommendations sort of call out, you know, the industry needs to focus on training and, and pulls out a, a number of incidents of the result of the person not being trained in the task. Need to focus on supervision. They, they had some big number like 32 out of the 47 incidents were the result of a, some kind of non-routine activity that should have required supervision when it and, and it wasn't ac adequate at, at the time. And then a focus of control, focus on risk controls, sorry, in a, in a way that said that, you know, the organisation had controls for this type of work and this type of risk, but they were absent or failed defences. I think that was the actual language used on the day of the incident. So training, supervision, risk controls, pretty simple formula that we see a lot in safety. So David, let me ask you this. We, we know that the mining industry skews heavily towards using ICAM as an analysis method. Have you ever seen an accident report produced using ICAM that didn't mention as findings there were problems with training, problems with supervision and controls that were either not present or not adequate? Yeah, look, that's a good, that's, that's a good question, Drew. I think that's largely a rhetorical question, um, though, by the time you got to the end of that one. Look, ICAM, ICAM is well used in the, in, the, um, in the mining industry in Australia, at least, and, um, and probably around the world. And obviously, people factors and, and organisation factors and, and so on, equipment factors, tends to go straight to training, supervision and risk control. So, yes, I mean, like we said earlier, you know, what you look for is what you find. And if your incident investigation causal categorization tool, gee, that's a big word, big sentence. If it's looking for these types of things, then you'll, you'll find them if you, if you want to find them. Yeah. So there is, I think, an underlying message there, which is that when it comes to safety, a lot of the things that we know we need to do are things that we could just go ahead and do them. We don't need accident investigations to tell us. We don't need risk assessment to tell us. You know, we know that spending money and time on building competency in the work being done does make people safer. We know that equipping supervisors with the skills they need, and in particular giving them time to exercise those skills instead of having to focus on safe paperwork, does make people safer. And we know that there's a lot of tasks where we do know what the appropriate controls are. What we don't know is what are the organisational forces necessary to keep those controls reliably in place. And so may maybe, you know, sometimes it is just worth pointing out that these things do matter. Yeah, um, look, I think I think it is sort of practical and they're, and they're good reminders. I mean, interesting that thing on risk controls, the mining industry through the International Council of Mining and Minerals for the last five years or, or even longer with Professor Jim Joy has been pushing critical risk controls. It's one of the first industry to 
to have a mass take up in critical risk control. So there has been a lot of work in there, but you know, this was a this was a 20 year review. And I think that industry still recognizes that it's still at the start of trying to get all of those organizational forces in play to get those controls in reliably, as you said, Drew. But I, I certainly do think that it is a very open question whether critical risk control programs are effective at making sure that critical controls are in place. There's a certain point at which you have to say, we've had 20 years of the same controls not working. If you want to fix that, you need an explanation for why that's the case. Um, Just so you're saying we need to try harder, we need to focus more, we need to make sure they're in place. I I think the time's come when we need to move move beyond that somehow. Yeah, and I think it depends on... Like any like any um, system of work, it depends on how it, how it's designed, and you know the work that we've been involved in with organisations in this space. It's you know their list of critical controls, you know, may actually make you cringe. It's like you know a procedure listed as a critical control, or or or, or some of these other types of administrative controls. And we'll talk quite a bit about administrative controls later. Yeah, and they're all exercised at the point of risk by the operator, whereas a lot of the uh, the systemic controls for risk are are far back behind you know the worker and the operator and the point of risk which which aren't always checked in critical control programs so you know i see a lot of critical control programs which turn into kind of like self-imposed behavioral safety programs on the operator so you know there's a fair bit to unpack in there but drew interestingly in this recommendation that um is probably the first mention of the idea that these fatalities were were not not all the result of human error so there was a there was a section in the report here that said, look, 17 of these 47 fatalities had absolutely no human error involved. A further 10 fatalities were the result of known faults and issues that were unaddressed. And like another nine had had previous near misses almost identical to the event that also had gone you know, un, unmanaged by the by the mine. So this, you know, the report calling out this idea that these fatal incidents, we can't just say human error for these. Not that surprising, but but nice to appear in a report. Yeah, I have to say that I'm impressed because if I'd had to guess, I would have thought that the vast majority of the reports would be calling out some sort of human error. So I don't think we can say much about the accidents from that sort of thing. But what we can say is, okay, we've got a pattern of investigators who are looking beyond the simple investigations. And that's a hopeful sign. Um, It would have been interesting. I, I didn't see anywhere in the report that tracks the trends. But interesting if there's been a decrease in assigning accidents to human error. That would be a very promising sign if there's a trend towards looking at the systemic causes. Yeah, I mean, that would give you some indication of the maturity, at least on the on the regulator side who's performing the investigations of their maturity in, in understanding, you know, incident causation or or their their learning around causation of incidents over over 20 years. But I I, I don't think we got that level of detail. So Drew, we get down to recommendation six and and Brady says, Dr. Brady says uh, that the industry should adopt the principles of high reliability organizations. Go. Yeah, I, I was a little bit flabbergasted by that one. It, it's not new for big investigation reports. And I guess even though this is dealing with multiple fatalities, that you can think of it as an investigation report, for people to get hold of one particular theory of safety and think that it provides all of the answers. And you know, we, we've previously mentioned the reference list. So as well as lots of Hopkins work, it has a couple of books by Vake, one of the key proponents of HRO. It has a whole heap of Sidney Decker's work and Nancy Levison's work, who aren't HRO theorists, but are certainly sympathetic to the HRO ideas. And... I'm I'm really not certain that you can say we should adopt a safety theory as an approach to managing safety within an industry. You know, if you just sort of substitute it with equivalent comments, uh, you know, we should adopt the Swiss cheese model across the industry, or we should adopt safety too as the solution across industry, or yeah, we should adopt the garbage can theory of organization choice across industry. Um, you know, yes, safety practitioners should be familiar with all the big theories in their field, but I'm not sure that you know, a, a theory or a big model like that necessarily gives you clear guidance on what you're expected to do next. 
Yeah, I think that's the point, the clear guidance and, and recommendations that are, that are actionable. I know that, um, for example, after Columbia, Professor Dave Woods was on the Independent Accident Investigation Board and there was a there was a lot of resilience engineering language put in through that through that independent report, but it was done in quite a practical, direct way about exactly how the industry should rethink the way that it, the way that what was the space program should rethink the way that it operates and what it does. Whereas here, the way that it's presented, the way that HRO theory is presented here, it it kind of it, it it's quite general, and then it's you know really oversimplified. It almost just says that. Um, you know, HRO is all about just reporting incidents and acting on them before they cause fatalities. It's pretty much what they boil down to. And then there's also some things that made me absolutely cringe where there's one quote in there that said, in high reliability organizations, there's no such thing as a safety culture, there's a reporting culture. And I don't know where Dr. Brady got that sentence from, but the explanation of HRO and the explanation of what it means for the mining industry, I think was, um, was very superficial and in some places just wrong. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would hate for the mining industry to use this report as their guide to what HRO offers in terms of ideas and practicalities. It, it's it's translating some deep and complex and a theory that actually has lots of different variations on it into a single very dumbed down version. And we've seen this, true. Uh, we've absolutely seen this. So the, and particularly when you look at the reference list of this report. So in the mid two thousands, um, Hopkins publishes a book called "Learning from High Reliability Organizations," or it might have even been the early two thousands. And then Texas City happens in two thousand and five, and he publishes publishes the book on failure to learn. And people pick in the oil and gas industry internationally pick up Hopkins books and and the HRO theory that's throughout that. And I lost count of the number of international oil and gas organizations that put in place HRO programs. Um, BP had one in between, uh, in between Texas City and Macondo, BP had a global HRO safety management program following Texas City. And, you know, I just think, we might talk about this at the end, but I just, I can just see this happening in the Queensland mining industry in the next two to three years with, um, with very little safety benefit. Yeah, we've seen the same thing happen with the idea of just culture. I'd even say we've seen the same thing happen with behavioural safety, that your very complex ideas get turned into very programs that people think are going to be a quick fix. And so they grab onto this idea without properly fully understanding what it is, what its strengths are, what its limitations are. And ideas applied without fully understanding them often miss out on the things that make them good ideas in the first place. Yeah, so Drew, while I'm on a bit of a rant, I might just um, say a bit more about this because I was reading through some of these sections of the report, the sections that we're talking about. There was sections started to talk about just culture and blame and learning and and phrases such as Newtonian linear thinking. And I thought, gee, you know, and then I then I had a look at the reference list and could see where where all of that, you know, the books that all of that had come out of. But what was curious was that Dr. Brady had said that the industry really needs to understand that mining is a is a complex system it's tightly coupled it's an open system it's got it needs to understand emergence and non-linearity and adaptation and drift and all of these things that come out of complexity science and um you know and and modern socio-technical systems sort of theory and then the same report had drawn its conclusion from the production of 47 linear causal diagrams of um historical historical incident investigation reports which it was fascinating that the, that I found there was almost no basis for the recommendation in any of the way that the, uh, the the report was actually done. So I find that quite ironic, but also a little concerning that the level of understanding by the author of some of this safety theory was um, was quite superficial. Yeah, David, you know that I love Sydney as a person and I have a great respect for his academic work. But whenever I have students who are directly putting Sid Decker quotes into their assignments, I always scribble on the margins just asking them to explain what they think Cartesian Newtonian thinking is. Because <laughs> some of these phrases roll off the tongue and they sound great and impressive. You non-linear approaches to accidents. You, if you actually stop and think, what does this mean? It, I mean, Sydney meant something when he wrote it, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people who copy it just have this weird idea about what it means yeah Tayloristic worldviews and a whole raft of um of phraseology that 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 sydney sort of places so well in his text but uh 
you know, but 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 has a whole lot of understanding underneath it to 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 use it well. Um, and 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 that's where I think I think I mean this. On one hand, I think that the industry will um, will pick up this idea of high reliability organisations and go, oh wow, this is interesting. I I I, I want to learn more. And you know, I think that's a good thing. I think industry getting interested in in safety theory is a good thing, and different types of safety theory, particularly you know the mining industry, to to think about these different types of approaches to safety management. You know, I hope that there's some careful thought given to how it gets translated into action. So let's move on to recommendations seven and eight, David. I'm interested in your thoughts here because I by this point I was thinking, okay, we've got onto a bit of the report that I can probably agree with a lot of what it's saying. But you seem to have some practical difficulties that you don't think regulators can actually do what's being asked of them. So recommendation seven and eight are about the regulator. And I, I kind of felt that maybe the, the author thought that the regulator was the customer because this, this report doesn't say anything negative at all in relation to the role of the regulator in, in regulating industry. So it's kind of interesting as to kind of government is the customer. So the regulator is part of government and, and we tread softly when it comes to what the regulator has or hasn't done. But they said that the regulator should to support the industry to operate like high like you know high reliability organizations, then the regulator should play a role of collating and sharing lessons across the industry. And then the second recommendation was that the that the regulator should have incident reporting process that allows people in the field to directly report to the regulator. So I'm a mine, I'm a I'm driving a truck at a mine somewhere in Queensland and I have an incident and I open my regulator app and I just enter the information straight in and it goes immediately straight into the regulator. So I think, you know, on one hand, I thought the Dr. Brady really doesn't understand how safety regulation works and how organizations interface with regulators. And on the other hand, I just don't think there's any way that the regulator can play its regulation role and then try to be a partner with the industry in learning. I think something serious would have to change in in governmental and, and societal expectations of what what regulation looks like. So this is probably something that we can reopen on another podcast episode. But I think this is an important constraint around a lot of safety practice is the regulator both as an organization and as individuals is caught in this bind where they're supposed to be helping and supporting industry right up until the moment when industry crosses an imaginary line and then across that line, suddenly the regulator has to be collecting evidence and prosecuting and determining what's been done wrong. And I know that this is something that individuals within the regulator struggle with constantly. Sorry, I say the regulator, uh, any regulator struggle with constantly, is the conflicting expectations of these roles. That, you know, you can't be someone who impartially collects information and analyzes that information and gives advice and people talk to freely when you know that next week you might be the person putting together the case to send off to the prosecutor. Yeah, exactly right, Drew. I mean, the regulator's there for, um, you know, and, and measured and, and sees its value through enforcement action. You know, it's interesting if Dr. Brady had picked up maybe one of Todd Conklin's book, books and read the quote that you can punish or you can learn and you can't do both, to think that a regular can, regulator can play a role of both punish, of both uh, learning facilitator and uh, executioner is I just don't see how that's practical in, in, in the way that our, you know, our modern business construct. So, you know, it's interesting to say, yeah, the regulator should be involved in collating and sharing lessons. And yeah, the regulator should have, you know, an, an app so that people in the field can report directly. But frankly, that's not the way that regulation and industry interfaces. At a time when we appear to have a bit of political will for talking about these fatalities and responding to them, I see this one as a missed opportunity. I would really like it when people make these reports to look for the big changes and you're giving regulators genuine options, for example, restructuring them into multiple organisations, one for providing industry support that is independent from the enforcement arm and things like that may not be achievable, may not be politically feasible, but you know, this sort of reports the opportunity to float those sorts of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I agree, a bit of a missed opportunity and, and a bit naive in its recommendations. So recommendation nine and 10, Drew, basically go to replacing lost time injury frequency rate with serious accident frequency rate. So it says that, you know, trots out, you know, what, what we know from the last 20 years that LTIs aren't that useful for safety and, and, and subject to corruption and says we should replace lost time injury rates with serious accident rates because you can't hide when people go to hospital. So, Drew, 
replacing one injury count to another. Does that fix the problem? So two, two points here. The first one is this definitely shows the naivety if you think you can't hide hospitalizable injuries. I, I have tried saying before in closed doors with other safety professionals that, you know, at least fatality counts are reliable because you can't hide fatalities. Only had to have people explain to me carefully the many ways to hide a fatality. Yeah. Hiding hospitalizable injuries is certainly something that can be done. All you need is to classify it as something that doesn't happen at work or ensure the treatment happens somewhere that is not a hospital. My favourite one, which is declare your entire worksite a hospital so that no one ever crosses that boundary towards being admitted. All real things done in real organisations to avoid. But I think the fundamental things here are firstly, yes, kudos to the report for pointing out yet again the problem with lost time injury frequency rate. Um, it needs to keep being said because people need to keep hearing it as a consistent message whenever this sort of report happens. We just can't let off constantly reminding people that lost time injuries are not a good measure of anything. Yeah, and I think, I think Drew, I think some of... I mean, I was, I was kind of, you know, also I couldn't help but read this, this report with, a, with an industry lens and a, and a practical lens of, of, of my time in organisations. And, you know, I think one of the ways that Dr. Brady suggested we get around that was to actually put the same reporting app in the hands of the doctors in the hospital so that when anyone came from a mine to get hospitalised, the doctors would have to report it and then they could cross-check the information with what the mine reported to make sure that they both reported the incident. And I was just thinking practically, how do you get doctors to report to a mining regulator and know that someone from a mining industry in their normal routines with the thousands of doctors across the state. It's just some of the recommendations, the detail of the recommendations kind of just didn't, didn't make kind of practical, actionable sense to me. So, you know, I agree with you. I think it's great that we continue to point this out, but, um, you know, it would have been, would have been nice to have a different kind of solution. I, I'd agree. I'd say, well, why don't the mines report to the regulator every month their current profitability to know where there might be increasing gold conflict in particular mines around, around the state and the potential for you know, cheaper contractors or less labor to be employed to perform, you know, normal work tasks and things like that. So there was a, there was a chance for this report to move right, right beyond safety indicators in its entirety, which it kind of missed as well. And I feel obliged to put my statistician's hat back on and to point out that if this recommendation is true and if serious accident frequency rate is in fact a good measure of fatality risk, then how come there's no cycle in the serious accident frequency rate? How come that has been trending steadily upwards? Um, you know, either the report, the recommendation about cycles is untrue, or this recommendation is untrue. You can't have both. Yeah, this um, and and for those who haven't read the report, it's I think this serious accident frequency rate's only been measured for about the last eight or or ten years, or not quite half the period. And yeah, it trends up every year. So in the years that uh, that fatalities went from three or four down to zero serious accidents went up, you know, in the same period. So to, to suggest that serious accident frequency rate is a predictor of fatalities is, is not true in the statistics. But I think this report doesn't quite make that claim. It just says that serious accidents is a better overall indicator of the safety of the industry than, you know, lost time injury is. And, and that claim, you know, you could probably say, yeah, well, you know, maybe that's an okay claim, but it's still not going to help you maybe prevent fatalities by, by looking at that rate. So should we mention also recommendation 11, which talks about reporting of high potential incidents? And this is another thing that is a little bit obvious, but I think does need to be said in every report, that we shouldn't be using reported incidents as a negative indicator. You know, we should be not punishing people and thinking badly of them because they report a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. I think anything that's reported is 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 useful. It's better to know about something than not know about it. So you have to be careful with how you treat anything that anyone tells you um, in the safety context in an organisation. So I agree. You know, report it. You should never be trying to push down anything that push down in rate anything that you want your people to actually report to you. But the flip side yeah. of that is, it doesn't also apply that deliberately pushing up reporting doesn't improve the quality of your reporting and the quality of your information. Um, so the suggestion in this report is that we should use high potential incidents as a measure of having a good reporting culture. That, you know, we should be celebrating success every time the number of high potential incidents goes up. Um, and that seems to me is a recipe for people to just put in place organisational policies that people have to report so many incidents every month. And we get people deliberately stubbing their toes in order to claim that they almost killed themselves. 
Yeah, and look, there was no relationship between the high potential incidents and the fatalities either. You know, in the years, there was, I think, the same amount of high potential incidents reported in one of the years where there was zero fatalities in the industry as the as the year before this report when there was five um, fatalities in the year. So, you know, I was also thinking about this, Drew, and saying, you know, kind of so what? You know, what, what does even good look like? So is 40 is 50 is 60 like when you say that we're going to use that as a as a barometer for a reporting culture then you kind of have to start putting goalposts in place and you know where do you put them and if reporting goes down what do you do if reporting goes up what do you do so these these indicators really aren't indicators of you know that could lead to any decision around action they're kind of just like counting things that you can count So, David, I'd like to move on beyond the recommendations, because I think buried within the depth of the report are some hints at some useful discussions that they had in preparing this report with industry and some real problems that I think do deserve further investigation and to be uncovered and talked about if we're really serious about improving mining safety in Queensland and more broadly. And these are things that didn't get in-depth treatment. I think because they didn't get that much treatment in the accidents that made the main focus of the report. But maybe you could point out a few of those things. Yeah. So there was a section in there about industry consultation or discussions with industry. And disappointingly, we actually don't know who and how many people Dr. Brady spoke to, which organisations or or how these sessions were kind of carried out. But did um but did report on some themes that came back with discussions from people with industry. So we don't know if these are a result of a conversation with one individual or 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 a much bigger sample. But you know, the first one that that was highlighted to him during this review period um, was that industry feels like it's got too much paperwork and procedures, and that these procedures are the default approach to managing risk. Um, so, Drew, you know, we've written a bit about safety work and safety clutter. It's interesting that that was not you know, gone and looked for in the incident reports and then maybe reflected up in a recommendation, at least to me, that was a little bit interesting. Yeah, it was certainly something that would be worth checking back in the recommendations from the original incidents, because uh, certainly it's true within organisations. I'm less certain whether it's true about the mining regulator in Queensland. Uh, But there is this default that we respond to a recommendation by creating some sort of new paperwork or new procedure or modification to existing procedure. You know, we was, a hazard got missed, so we add that hazard to our checklist. Uh, there was inadequate supervision, so we create a supervision form. Yeah, and a bias um, and an assumption on my part, but, you know, we, we've we seen in other research papers and, and reports that, you know, the lack of supervision in these 32 or 47 fatalities could have been the result of the supervisor having to sit in his office and, and do the paperwork or the failed and absent defences that were in place could have been a result of all of these administrative controls that weren't complied with or followed. So, you know, maybe they weren't, maybe maybe these things weren't discussed, you know, as underlying contributors to to the causes in the, in the original incident reports, which is a bit of a shame. The, the second one that gets talked about is something that I know you've talked about, David, before, and this is a real cycle that is very interesting in mining, is the um, influx of new people to the industry. And the way the boom-bust cycle of mining sort of requires these high manpower demands that require bringing in people who are unfamiliar with mining um, to the point where we you know, lack people to do the safety roles and the training roles and the supervision roles, that those people become new and inexperienced as well. Yeah, so this report talked about, or at least some people made comment to, to Dr. Brady about, about you know, the influx of new inexperienced people into the industry and and those people being trained and supervised by people who'd only been in the industry for a few years or, or, or less. So, you know, that's definitely something that could have, you know, you know, maybe really, really useful for the industry to understand, but, but again, not in the recommendations. The third one, Drew, after paperwork and industry experience was this idea of contractors being less safe than employees. So this was a little bit in some parts of the data, but not compellingly, but definitely with the people who were engaged to, to talk there was definitely this feeling that contractors work less, less safely than employees. So this is probably one that we can discuss another time because there, there are papers published or being published out of it. But one of my own PhD students, a guy called Sharan, has done actually a similar work looking at fatality reports. But he focused specifically on what are the factors in these reports that are related to the employment status of the people involved. This is something that the original investigators didn't focus on. So it's a genuine revisionist type approach to look and say, you know, if we look at this purely from a lens of contracting, 
what can we see about the way contracting relationships contributed to the accident? In an industry like mining that has so much of so many different types of contracting, you know, it's, we've got uh, subcontracting, we've got mining services firms, we've got labour hire. Those are definitely safety issues worth exploring. Yeah, absolutely true. So we've, um, as much as I, I went into this committed to not being too critical because these reports are hard to do and um, and given the data that you've got and obviously the politics around it, but um, but I've probably been a little bit more critical than I intended to be through our review of the recommendations. So now it's our chance to talk about maybe some some missed opportunities and some overall comments. So what would you have liked to have seen in, in this sort of a report based on the recommendations and you know the, our understanding of the industry and you know the comments we've made? Okay, so, so maybe we can take it in turns for these. The, the first big one that I would like to see serious discussion because it requires both industry and government and the regulator to talk about is workforce mobility and the problems it creates for safety and how we're going to tackle it. You there's nothing in the statistics to say that mining is getting more dangerous over time, but it is certainly facing new issues as a result of increased fly-in, fly-out, increased people coming into the industry and out of the industry and back in again. Yeah, Drew, I, I mean, I the report had a huge opportunity to talk about um, engineering solutions for hazard control. And, you know, there's lots and lots of graphs about the recommendations in these reports that for high potential incidents, for fatalities, were always more than 70% administrative, always about admin and PPE or even no action specified at all for, for a number of these high, high potential incidents and that. And, and there was no, there was a real opportunity to talk about engineering solutions and, and probably what I'd call proper investment in, um, in safety in, in kind of protecting people from physical hazards in the workplace through engineering solutions. Um, it's something that that talks to that uh, that that growth in paperwork, and it and it talks to kind of like, you know, the the administrative controls in that, that just are so easy to put in after an incident. Yep, I'd like to know about how we deal with the boom bust cycle that I've already uh, sort of referred to a little bit, particularly when it comes to you know how do we sort of build and maintain a cadre of industry experienced safety professionals. You're not just people with safety experience, but experience in the mining industry. Um, and not, not just maybe safety, maybe safety training supervision are the big ones where we're at risk of losing talent every time there's a bust and having people come in quickly with inadequate training and inadequate experience when there's a boom. Yeah, and one of the things that we, we talk about often, Drew, <laughs> Again, the safety of work, the title of this podcast is there was, there was no real serious discussion about the work itself. You know the work of mining, um, the business models in place, the supply chains. You know the changing nature of goals and pressures and objectives of industry. How work is managed. Um, different emerging technologies into the industry and autonomous um, mining vehicles and different underground mining technology and processes and 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 how does that change the nature of work itself and the risks that people face? So there was kind of no point for the industry to, you know, think about the changing nature of you know, of the work and the technology. So I think we're going to have to already declare this an hour-long special episode of the podcast. Let's move on, if that's okay, to practical takeaways. Yeah, right. Let's do that. Let's do that. Um, so I suppose, Drew, well, I'm not even going to talk. You, you, you've been holding on to this idea all, all episodes. So uh, how about you start us off? Okay. So, so the first thing that I said to David when he suggested that we do an episode of this report is that I wanted to talk about the idea of a deepity. Um, and so that's my takeaway for people is learn the concept of deepity. So a deepity is a statement which can be read at two levels. So it's always got a surface level where it's true but trivial, but it also sounds profound. And at that deeper level, it is profoundly wrong. And so a classic example is the idea of a fatality cycle in this report. So I'm sure some of our listeners will be saying, yeah, stop nitpicking with this idea of fatality cycle. The main point is just don't be complacent. And that's fine. You know, if you don't be complacent is good but trivial advice. And you have someone's paid tens of thousands of dollars to create a report and their number one recommendation is don't be complacent. They're going to look you know, not like they've done a deep job. So they try to make it sound more sophisticated. Instead of saying, don't be complacent, they say the industry needs to recognize that there's a fatality cycle. And that's either just means the same thing as don't be complacent or it's total bunk. 
and you look out for things in safety that seem trivially true and can be defended as trivially true, but have no deeper meaning, or to the extent that they have a deeper meaning, that's wrong. Um, high reliability organizations can be a similar thing. In fact, any safety theory can fall into this trap. You, you can look at it at surface level, which is almost in this report the same thing. They're using high reliability organizations as a form of don't be complacent and collect data on incidents. But you know, if you're going to uh, put in a theory, then go deep into the theory. Look at all the things it suggests. Look at the new ways it offers of looking the world. And maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't. But you don't treat it at a surface level. Yeah, and similarly, this idea that high potential incidents are a good measure of a reporting or a safety culture, you know, that sounds, you know, profound but trivial. Yeah, if people report, um, you know, it's open. But at a deeper level, as soon as we start setting targets around HPIs, you know, they'll succumb to the exact same institutional forces that our other measures have faced. And, you know, at a deeper level, what's the denominator? You know, how will industry act? What's good? What's bad? What are the tolerances? You know, if there was more HBIs last year than this year, what does that mean? Our reporting culture's gone down, our work's changed. So at a surface level, HBIs are a measure of safety culture at a deeper level, kind of, they're absolutely not. Okay, so the final one from me is a bit more sympathetic to the report. And that is, I think this type of exercise is an illustration of just how hard it is to get useful learning out of accidents. We can learn from accidents, but it's rare and it requires a lot of self-awareness. That's one of the reasons I actually stopped doing DisasterCast, is there's this constant risk that you're just using the accident to tell people about your own pet ideas and theories. You're not uncovering or discovering. You're just using it to present what you think is already true. And it just a, it's almost an impossible challenge to go back to these accidents that have already been investigated and tell the industry something it doesn't already know. And so given the, the prominence of this report in the media, Drew, my final practical takeaway, which is entirely tongue in cheek, would be for any safety consultants out there in the mining industry is, you know, make sure you add HRO program implementation to your list of services in the next year or two. Uh, is that tongue in cheek or is that just good advice? So we end each episode with invitations to our listeners, things we'd like to know. Um, in this particular case, the report is publicly available. Even though we've been a bit critical in here, I still do think that people who are interested in safety in Australia and interested in the mining industry should read the report. It's got problems, but read it, think about it, think about what we've said, think about your own opinions about what the problems are, what the solutions are, and we'd be interested in what you think. We're also interested just sort of more broadly in what you think of this episode. We've strayed outside of our normal format. We're not talking about a paper. We're probably verging more on being critical than on trying to find learnings out of it. So tell us what you think. If you want more of this sort of episode, whether you hated it and want us to go stick just to the normal format, let us know. Thanks, Drew. So um, that was fun. Apologies if it's a bit longer than our regular um, listeners' commutes or, or exercise sessions. But uh that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join in our discussion at our LinkedIn group or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>